Superbrain is a labour of love. Alas, no podcast can survive on love alone. We don't have a sponsor, so we need your support for Superbrain to stay alive and kicking. You can make a one-off donation by following the Support This Show link in the show or episode description. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Superbrain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. My name is Sabina Brennan and I came across today's guest on Twitter. I couldn't help but notice the ridiculous racism she was subjected to online on a regular basis. I took a deeper dive and was delighted to discover a really, really interesting and inspiring young woman who is defined by her life choices and her interests and her achievements, not by the racism she is subjected to. So, Una Ming, thank you so much for joining me. Kerry woman, Gail Gore, entrepreneur, I think nearly at this stage, uh, journalist, media content creator, gamer, so many things. And this is what I love about women now. We're so many things and it's often hard. I do a few things. I wear a few hats as well. And sometimes when people say, well, what are you? <laughs> what do you do? And you kind of go, God, do I give the whole list or do I just pick out of it? How do you describe yourself uh, yeah. in terms of what you do? It's been really tricky, actually, because over the years, kind of like the same what you just mentioned there, it's kind of hard to define yourself sometimes, and particularly because I work on the online world. I think at the time, because I started about 10 years ago, is that it was obviously the online world existed, but the career choices that I made didn't necessarily exist in terms of titles. So I was kind of saying that I did a bit of everything. I trained as a journalist and I worked as a journalist as well. So I prefer to utilize that as my foundation. It's your qualification, you know, I mean, that's the same reason I say I'm a psychologist and neuroscientist. That's what my degrees are in. And I suppose it also gives that authenticity that you're just not someone who's making stuff up. You have your training and your background and you know what you're doing. And I think particularly in media, if you're on media and talking to people, people like to know that, you know, they need to know that you have something backing you up. Yeah, totally. And I think it's really important as well that, you know, I found that a lot of people were coming out of doing their degrees and then already calling themselves journalists, but they hadn't worked in the journalistic world. And I found that really fascinating as a concept because I have. And I think it is really important to have that kind of foundation where you actually have worked in that field. But I started off going the traditional route in the sense that it was very much a situation where people said that just go into uh, office based workplace environment. And I thought, okay, well, that's where I'm supposed to go. (laughs) So I went that way. And then it was a situation after a few years that it was not suiting me at all. But yet at the time, society and even in secondary school, when I was going to career advice and all of that, they were saying that, oh, well, journalism is such a fickle job. You know, you're going to have to find something concrete and stick to it and keep there and be like there for 40 years or whatever. And I was like, okay, sure, sure, sure. But it just was not suited to my type of work. I hear you. I hear you completely. And I mean, I'm going back way, way back longer than you, so it was probably even worse. In fact, actually, you're born in 1991. That's it, yes. Yeah, so my son was born in 1991. Oh, in right, fact. cool. 
Yeah. So what I was going to say was exactly that. You did very well if you got a permanent pensionable job. And as a woman back then, when I left school, university wasn't a direct route. Like there was a small handful from school who went to university. Most of us were looking to get permanent pensionable jobs. And if you did that, you did really well. And I got a job in an insurance company where I got a mortgage. So like, you know, I had a mortgage at 24, was able to buy a house. And But like, I don't even know I'd even thought about any of that. You just did it. So many of us were so accepting that our job was just something where we made money to party or say for holidays or buy new clothes rather than it being, a, well, there was a career trajectory, but rather than it being something that satisfied the need inside of you. So I totally get what you're saying there, that it just didn't feel right. And you actually, in your book, which I recently read and really thoroughly enjoyed, it's actually a really lovely book. Una Ming's book is called Ansha, which for listeners outside on Ireland means here, I'm here in the Irish language. And I'll talk a little bit about that later because Una is absolutely passionate about the Irish language. But you actually in your book talk about actually feeling depressed mm-hmm. while you were in work. Yeah. So actually, I have lived with depression and anxiety for quite a long time. It started in my leaving cert year, the worst year ever, when I was trying to focus in on exams and uh, try and get through the whole situation as well. But do you think that was because it was your leaving cert year? No, 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 that there were no. multiple factors to do Not with it. Okay. It was also just very, very stressful. And I think that it's really hard. You know, you're, you're a young person trying to decide what to do with your life, mm-hmm. as well as the exams. So there's way too much pressure that's put upon the person there of trying to actually figure out what you want to do at 18 or 19 years old, which is impossible. It's madness. And then lots of people feel stuck in a career. Yeah. There's also the kind of the myth that uh, people just say that what is the statistic that one in four people experience some sort of mental health issue, which I kind of disagree with. I think everyone does at some stage in their lives. But I think that kind of at least gave me a route to figure out what I was going through. Now, sometimes I know that some people don't like labels because they just don't like putting labels on themselves to diagnose themselves. For me, it was just useful because I could figure out how I was experiencing things, how I could deal with things. I consider myself to be a relatively high achiever in life. Like I I want to do a lot of things, but I think much to my detriment uh, in my career, I I kept on wanting to do more and more and more and more and more. And with that just comes an immense pressure. And there were just some times in my life where I was in the office jobs that I held and no fault to the jobs themselves or the whole situation. It was just that it just didn't suit me to be doing the same thing day in, day out and have the same pattern. And I wanted to just do, I wanted to serve multiple clients as opposed to one boss. Right. I think even as women, we're told that it's just safer to go for a set career instead of trying to take risks or whatever. Probably it's less imaginative. Yeah, it's safe. Would you say that you would fall victim to perfectionism? I... I'm not sure if it's even perfectionism. I think that it's very much a situation where I feel like we're only on this planet once. (laughs) So it's just like, well, might as well try everything. But then it's also like, oh, I actually have to work as well, you know. What has amazed me, you know, reading about your life, and that's why it's lovely, you know, I mean, you were probably, what, 28 when you wrote your first memoir, really, when you think about it. That's, you know, kind of crazy, but it's really useful. It's a really helpful insight. It certainly helped me in terms of research kind 
of getting a little bit inside your brain, not saying for a minute that I know a lot about you, but it helps a little bit to understand your journey. But I think what you're saying there is very, very mature, something that it probably took me till I was in my 40s to come to realize, you know, you've only got one bite of this cherry. And you know what? Other people, aside from being kind and not hurting people, they don't matter. What matters is that you actually make use of this incredible gift of life that you have. So it's amazing that you have that understanding already. I suspect it's because you had a very secure upbringing. Yeah, it's an interesting thing because I suppose I do a lot of different things, but it it is that kind of strive that I have, I suppose, is a mix of having a very secure childhood, but also I've faced a lot of difficulties in my life. And it's a situation where I think on social media in particular that it's very easy to complain about something and just complain about it. But if I'm complaining about it, I'd like to offer a solution. (laughs) I'm with you. There's no point in complaining. The point is, how can we fix this? Or (laughs) or how can we understand why this is happening? You know, I have interviewed a number of guests who've had horrific experiences on social media. I had one woman in season one, a journalist actually, and she had written a piece about obesity and how do we find this balance between health messages around obesity and fat shaming? Mm -hmm. You know, how do we find that balance? But her sub-editor, and as you know, as a journalist, a lot of people out there don't know, is the journalist has no control over the sub-editor's headline. And I've been victim of that myself, where they put this salacious headline Headline, and her sub-editor had put a headline that journalist said she doesn't want her daughter to be taught by fat teachers, mm-hmm. which is not kind of what she said. But she woke up and it had gone viral. The US, Australia, she was in the UK. And I mean, she had not only death threats, but death threats to her daughter. And she lost a job as a consequence. Total sort of misrepresentation. But it's got that point where it's getting more and more difficult through online and social media to have a balanced conversation that allows people to say, well, look, this is an issue. But then you're accused of being that person who believes that the nuance and the discourse is very stunted. Yeah, it's pretty bad. And I think it's gotten worse during the pandemic because people have more time in their hands. So they're just spending more and more time online and just browsing and trying to find people to kind of twist their words or whatever. And obviously, it's important to call some people out if what they're saying is problematic. But the problem is a lot of the time, for example, with Twitter, you're only seeing like a snippet of that person's personality in a feed. You might even follow this person. You might know their context of their lives or whatever. Uh, I remember one situation where this uh, poor girl that I know that she basically had received so much racial abuse over the years that understandably her guard was up all the time and she made a mistake of and actually seeing a a complimentary message was just it was just phrased in a weird way that she thought it was attacking her but like it was only because that her guard was up for so long that that's what she has experienced so much and that's what she was so used to which is kind of so reflective on society today and of course you know like she apologized for that but had she not seen it or apologized people would have no doubt got onto her and say how dare you you're even attacking nice people or whatever so I think that while the internet has brought us much greatness uh social media in particular even though it's my career and I I utilize it to create content the reactory 
experience online makes my job very difficult. <laughs> I know, I'm, I'm totally with you. I have to use it as well in terms of my work. And uh, to be honest, I'd rather not. And actually, I was only saying to someone yesterday exactly what you were saying about the pandemic and people being online and having arguments. And I am saying, look, if you really want to manage your stress, really spend as little time as possible online. Instead of getting yourself dragged into an argument on Twitter, go and do something you love. Mm-hmm. Something that makes you feel good. You'll feel so much better and so much more energized. And I mean, going back, social media initially was incredible. It's just changed. And definitely it's that cloak of anonymity and People behave in a way that they would not behave in face to face. And probably you're right, that has become accelerated because we're not even engaging face to face. Uh, But tell me a little bit more. So you're in these jobs, you kind of felt you wanted, and that's an interesting way you said you wanted to serve more than one boss. Well, there's something I kind of learned from a business entrepreneur called Pat Flynn. I've done a few of his uh, courses. And basically his motto is to succeed in business or whatever you serve first. And that's really important, I think, because you will get ahead in life if you are serving people, not yourself, basically. And I think that that's one thing that content creators, a lot of them fail at, particularly in the new influential sphere. While I accept now that influencers exist, um, but I didn't for a while, but just because it was so new. I'm thinking, why? It's a new career and I, I totally understand that. Um, but people can eventually, they will tire of creators or influencers who are just serving themselves and their own needs. So what you do is pretty much the key to it that I learned over the years was to just keep on creating for people. Um, And in turn, you learn yourself, which is really nice. And that's what I kind of wanted to do. I didn't consider initially being my own boss because I didn't also consider how difficult the things like taxes and accounts and all that kind of stuff that I had to do. So um, learning that was hard and I still am learning that. I find it really interesting that I was never taught this stuff in school or maybe I was and I just didn't think about it. (laughs) I often think we need more life education in school. I think it would just be much more valuable. I think we could address a huge amount of inequalities by teaching some of those life things. I remember years ago having this discussion around a a dinner table with people and they're saying, no, that's up to families to do that. And then education is about, you know, what we call the academic stuff. And I would disagree because then you're perpetuating a cycle of if people don't have those qualities or anybody at home to teach them how to manage money or how mortgages work or how to plan, you're perpetuating a cycle. You're kind of keeping people almost within their socioeconomic class. Whereas if everybody at school is given all those basics, well, then you're giving people a springboard to move up or beyond or reach their potential. But it's kind of hard to break those barriers where I personally think there's too much emphasis on academic success. For sure. And I wonder, is that to do as well with discomfort? Because with that, we're not told how to critically think in school. And instead, we're told, like you mentioned, to learn the same stuff instead of actually contributing our own thoughts to it. And I wonder, is that because they don't want to, you know, a lot of people don't like confrontation. And would they see that as disagreeing with certain things? Would that cause confrontation within schools? But yet, what you're actually just trying to do is you should be teaching critical thinking. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which is totally different to just being like aggressive or whatever. And oh, But I, I agree with you. Yeah. I mean, I've often done that. 
I mean, I firmly believe you've got to keep questioning and that includes questioning your own beliefs. And you know, that's how we progress. But I find going back to the social media thing, if I put, because sometimes I will, I'll just sort of throw a question out there. But why are we doing that? Is that not the same as? And mm-hmm. suddenly you're just piled on as if, you know, you've you've said the worst thing on the planet. But we need to keep asking those questions. Yes, for sure. And and you have to obviously as well, you have to be genuine about it too. You have this lovely story because you have a grandfather who came from um Gail talked down Gail in Gail talked, which there's no really English word for it. It just means Pockets really is probably the best way to say it. There's pockets around Ireland where groups and communities still, for them, Irish is their first language. And that's the language that they speak day in, day out. And rather interestingly, um, there are, I suppose, different dialects in a way. There's Mm -hmm. Kerry Irish, Munster Irish and Ulster Irish. And then there's the Irish you get taught at school, which would be, I suppose, in a way like received pronunciation. But there's quite significant differences across those. But Una had this lovely you write about it in the book, this lovely relationship with your grandfather um, Mm. who spoke Irish and with whom you always spoke Irish. It's a lovely connection that you have. Yeah, it sure is. And my granddad meant a lot to me. Um, So I guess going back to, I suppose, on the dialectal thing. So there's basically, they say that there's three main dialects, Ulster, Munster and Connacht. I would kind of slightly disagree because Munster is too big (laughs) to just combine it all. But officially, they kind of say that. But what's interesting is, is that Munster is kind of broken into um, Cork, Waterford and Kerry. And where my granddad came from was in Kirkagoyne, which is a a West Kerry dialect, which is basically the the Dingle area, essentially the Dingle Peninsula. Right over on the coast of Ireland, right at the tip, you know, heading out into the Atlantic. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's just a fabulous area. But my connection with him was really that because it was just myself, my mom, my granddad growing up in the household, he would always speak Irish to me. And I would kind of cheekily, I I, I totally understand what he was talking about, but I'd kind of speak back in English to him. But it was very much a relationship that was built on, of course, love, but also the Irish language was our connection together. And I think that's why I have such a I put so much work into the language and utilize it every day because it, it keeps the memory of him alive for me. And it also uh, keeps that connection with the Gaeltacht here in Kerry. So, you know, we still have family, um, as we like to call it, back west in Kerry. And right. we go visit them. And it's very much a thriving part of our lives. And it's yeah. um, really it was really important for me in the book to highlight his story because no one unfortunately had gotten around to telling his and his was so fascinating. Yes. So I almost thought that with my book, because he's on the cover as well, but yeah. it was uh, it was really important actually to tell his story even more than my story because I have a few aspects of my life that I chose not to put in the book because yeah. I wanted to highlight his influence and how one, despite being not technically blood related, how we could still have this immense connection, obviously, because, you know, he was my family, essentially. It's lovely. And and I love to see passion in anyone. I'm a passionate person about things. And it, it's lovely. You're fortunate in a way that you found your passion early 
in life. Some people struggle to find it. And I would say, well, keep looking till you find it. You'll know when you meet it. I wouldn't be passionate about the Irish language. I would have a very different family history than you. You know, my parents didn't have a word of Irish. In fact, Irish wasn't taught in the schools when they went to school. I suspect that my father may have been of a similar age to your grandfather. Mm. So my father was born in 1921. Yeah, yeah. My, my grandma was, I think it was 1919, I think. Right. Yeah. This is the interesting thing about Ireland. So my dad grew up in Tullamore. Right. And my mother grew up in Dublin, but neither of them learned Irish at school. Mm -hmm. At their point, it wasn't thought. And then it was moved to then when my older siblings went to school, it was compulsory. And if you didn't pass your Irish exam, you failed your entire leaving cert, Mm -hmm. which was not a very good idea because not everybody can. The intent was to keep the language alive, but it's forcing people to do something is not a way to keep anything alive. And so that then was changed. But for me, Irish was always a challenge aside from the way it was taught in school, but there was no there was no identification with it in my family history, like going back yeah. to grandparents. Like we have a lovely book, actually. So my grandfather on my mum's side would have fought in the 1916 rising as a 16 year old and he was imprisoned and we do sit somewhere in my mother's things there's this book made of just pieces of paper stitched together where Irish had its own script mm-hmm. for people to write so uh, they were in defiance learning Irish so he was actually just trying to learn Irish while they were actually imprisoned but it, it never went beyond that but interestingly in my family and I think this sometimes happened when my brother and his wife emigrated to live in New York they took up Irish classes and they went to trad music sessions something they'd never done at home and I think that happens a lot that when the further you go from your, you know, original heritage, the more you want to explore that heritage. Whereas I live 500 yards from the house I grew up in. I'm not that brave traveler. So I I don't know that I need that connection that they felt they needed because I'm here. Yeah, I haven't left. Does that make sense? Oh, it totally does make sense. I absolutely think that it, in particular because I'm from Kerry, naturally the Irish language is just strong in this county yeah. anyway. Um, so it makes sense because all the Great Sea are predominantly to the west of Ireland or the south or there's, there's a, there are a few in County Mead as well. But it, it's a situation where that it, it made sense for me to feel so strongly about the language because also my grandma's Irish was just so lyrically beautiful that it would be impossible to deny it into my life and it would be a massive shame to have done so but with whatever language you speak not only do you have the richness of bilingualism but you can enjoy the media in two different ways you can enjoy books in two different ways any kind of thing the radio whatever it it adds a, a really extra layer of entertainment almost to your life and I think that if anyone is trying to learn a new language, I would hugely encourage it because it really gives you this extra feeling of, I suppose, understanding as well for a culture. And uh, one of the biggest issues that I find is that a lot of people don't understand the difficulties that the Gaeltacht communities have in terms of things like funding or Irish language rights or whatever, because they just see the Irish language as just the Irish language instead of an actual thriving natural resource that we have in this country and they see the Gaeltachty as a completely separate entity whereas actually those are the places that we should be focusing our attention on because they are essentially 
keeping it all really alive to its most authentic Irish self. But that's just a mini rant that I have in my mind. No, 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 that's fine. You know, I admire passion. I'm passionate about things that I think need to happen. And actually, one thing that jumped out at me in the book as well, again, you picked on something that I could really identify with. So a lot of what I do is translating complex neuroscience into easy to understand information. And I would argue that writing academic papers, you learn a new language. And I actually really question the need for it at all other than a certain snobbery. Why look for the most obtuse word when there's a perfectly good everyday word that could be used? And it's like a competition of who can write the most convoluted sentences in academia. And then, you know, every academic paper, scientific paper, you know, follows a particular method. And when I went to university, I didn't go till I was 42. I was excited to learn this and suddenly felt I was part of this little elite group that knew how to do this. And I learned how to do it very well. And that was all great. And then I went to do my PhD. And then I kind of went, I started to see it with the different eyes and go, you know what, this is elitist in not a good way, because there's a lot of really interesting and important health information that can be of use to the general public. But they not only don't get to see this information because it's generally behind paywalls, but also even if they could see it, they wouldn't understand it because it's written in such an obtuse way. So I've made my passion taking that information and translating it into easy to understand information. And one of the first ways I did that was actually using animation, because again, Again, animation transcends cultures, other biases, anything you have, because it's just a roundy face with a smile. You can't read anything else into it, but you can induce incredible empathy with those characters. And you just mentioned the word there a minute ago, uh, entertain. You twigged, like I twigged, that when it comes to you, you're passionate about trying to encourage people to get involved in Irish. That, And this is what I learned. I needed to educate people, but people don't want to be educated, but they do want to be entertained. So like I made a series of films designed to address the stigma around dementia. So it dealt with really, really tough. And this is back in 2012 when people weren't talking about dementia at all. And I insisted when I wrote the scripts and worked with fabulous animators, people have to laugh. People have to have fun. There has to be a funny story in here. So relevance, empathy and humor to me are the best way to connect. You say it slightly differently in your book, but you say the exact same thing. You did this lovely thing with Irish online where you share. Yeah, yeah. I do my best to share daily phrases. And it was one of those things that I wanted to share phrases that you mightn't necessarily find (laughs) when you're learning in school. So they're a bit more risky than other things. And I think it was really to find that humorous asset because actually there are so many Irish language books out there which have these beautiful, hilarious turns of phrase, metaphors, similes. And it's a shame that they often aren't shared online or just to get a good laugh out of it because there's a misconception as well that the Irish language is old, I suppose, uh, in one way, but there's actually so many modern words and phrases and they're constantly being added to the dictionaries. Yeah, that's like you say, while you're still learning, your language will evolve. The language itself is evolving. Yeah. No different than the English language is evolving. We're having to create new words to describe new experiences. And the Irish language is following along, sometimes by inserting 
the English word, but sometimes by creating its own version of that. And you play a little game sometimes doing that. And I should say to people listening, right, whether you have an interest in the Irish language or not, just reading those turns of phrase, you know, because what you do is you put the phrase in and then you put it in English. And they're just fun. They're funny. They're lovely, humorous. I can't think of any off the top of my head, but I think arse comes in quite a <laughs> It does appear quite a lot. And it's funny enough because with that one, I, I was basically in the book, I shared the ones that got the most interaction and the ones with arse just kept on getting retweeted and shared the most. So I was like, well, I can't deny the people of what they want. <laughs> so. so basically, you took this leap after deciding that working for someone else wasn't really finding your joy because that's the way I would see it. And so tell us what you did. Yeah. So I went into freelancing and it was honestly the best decision I ever made. Now, I probably didn't go about it the right way because it's recommended that you have a bit of savings before you actually even leap into your freelance world. I was actually very, very depressed at the time. So I felt that I couldn't wait that long. I was in a job that just was draining my soul, essentially. I was six months in a job, but I knew that if I stuck for it for another six, I would just be deeply unhappy and felt like I've um, not wasted, but I suppose that I could have been doing something else. And so I just decided to go for it. Um, I handed in my notice and thankfully, because of at least a social media presence that I had already built up, I wasn't completely alone in that respect. Even though I didn't have a client at the time, I did have a network of people that I could tap into at least and then start finding work from there. And it's been a challenge. It's been really, really enjoyable because I've worked with so many different people from smaller companies to larger companies and bigger international companies. And it just means that I can just do a variety of things. I can set my calendar to whatever I can set my own hours. But I mean, obviously, you know, for anyone who's listening, I think it's important to realize that it's a hell of a lot of hard work, too. It's even possibly in one respect harder than a nine to five in the sense that you're constantly hustling for work. Yeah. And that's what makes it challenging, but exciting. But you're working for yourself. I think that's the thing. I think if you do it properly, and I think that's something I want to talk to you about is sort of digital minimalism, because I think it fills into life minimalism that whereby, and I say this lots, and I've said it on this show, take time out, make an appointment with yourself and look at all the things that you do and all the things that you are and go through the list and decide what do I love? Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. What am I doing because I should or because I feel I have to? And just 
make a call. Yeah. <laughs> and then you're left with this core. And while you do a lot of different things, they draw on similar things. They feed your soul, as you just said, whereas the other type of job was draining your soul. You focus just on the things that you want to do. And I think that's where joy comes from and where satisfaction comes from and where I would define success. I don't believe success is around money, which we are academic achievement, which we often think it is. Obviously, we need enough money to survive and live and eat and sometimes have nice things. But it's much more if you're nurtured inside. So tell us a little bit about some of the other things that you do. Like you're in a whole world that I know nothing about, which is gaming. Yeah, so I, I suppose for me as a freelancer, it's important not to rely on one income source, um, which I think that as content creators, people are, they tend to do sometimes, which is really risky. Um, the reason why I'm on so many social media platforms, um, but I'm picky about the ones that I'm on, is because I was always told this more recently, it's kind of been drilled into my brain that your social media presence, you're working off borrowed land, and that can be taken away from you at any time. So okay. that's why it's really important to have, for me anyway, as a content creator, I also own my own website and that can't be taken away from me because it's mine. And also I built up my own email address. So even if, say, my Twitter was completely taken away from me and I had no longer access to the 20,000 followers or whatever I had, I would still have my newsletter and it'd be OK. okay. I could just reach out to them. Maybe that's how I've done well in my career so far is that I've realized that um, multiple avenues are important, but to do them well. Um, yes. And also, look, if something's not working, just it's OK to let it go. And I thought for ages that I, I put so much energy into projects that were going OK. And then I thought they might get better and then they just didn't. And I thought, well, maybe I'll just stick with them to see if it works out. But realistically, it's just sometimes you just have to let go. Yeah. Um, and that's but, learning. Yeah. Do you know, like if we don't make mistakes, if we don't try stuff, we never learn. Yeah. And failure is, is super important anyway. And we're never taught oh, to embrace it. I, I don't know when it ever got this negative connotation because failure is the flip side of learning. It's trial and error. Yeah. And that's how we learn. That's how our brain works. Oh, totally. And also, I suppose, going back to, yeah, sure, it, to let things go sometimes, but other times you just have to see, well, actually, am I doing something wrong? And is there something that I can tweak? Yeah. So, for example, with the gaming thing, I work as a live streamer. So basically, I broadcast live in front of an audience three times a week. What I've done to kind of focus in on a niche in that, because it can be quite difficult to gain traction or whatever, is that I broadcast in Irish and in English. And it's, it's quite unique because when you're broadcasting live through this platform, and it's not just gaming. I do a thing that's categorized as just chatting where I just chat to my audience. Oh, I saw one last night I looked at and I thought, what a brilliant idea. How yeah. genius. I'm just kind of, I'm so jealous of your ingenuity because I kind of go, God, I never would have thought, but yes, people would be absolutely mad. Yeah to look at that. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that people don't realise is that people love watching people react to things. You know, it is a relatively new concept. Having said that, I would have said something like Gogglebox, what a load of rubbish, but I've caught it a couple of times and actually it's fascinating. Yes, and that's exactly the same premise of what I'm doing yeah. when I'm live streaming. Yeah. And what's even more exciting about it in one way is with live streaming in comparison to Gogglebox, I can see people reacting in the chat so I can talk to them directly and yeah. they just have to type their messages. I can react to them. So it's very much an interactive experience for the viewer to also actually say it's a real challenge for your brain because you're actually playing a game. Mm -hmm. You're reading, you're managing the tech of it. Yes. <laughs> You're really keeping your brain sharp because you're task switching all the time between these things. It's really rather exciting. And I also think what you did, 
Like the key with any business as much, and I don't know very much about businesses, but you have to find a unique selling point. You have to have a niche. You have to tap into something. And you know what? I probably would have thrown out that idea if I was in a room with you of, oh, well, I'll do it. And I was saying, well, Jesus, now come on. You know, it's not like you might imagine, you know, that everybody in the country speaks Irish, you know, fluently and uses it every day. And I would have thought, well, you know, how many of those are into gaming? It becomes a very, very small audience. But of course, we have the Irish diaspora, the people who across the globe really strongly identify with being Irish. And I presume that you have a very global yeah, following. Absolutely. It's a huge variety of people that come in because I stream at eight o'clock in the evening so I can target the US audience as well as the Irish audience. Right. It's always a mix of people who just want to type and practice or whatever. Or are they just saying the couple of or whatever? And it's, it's really nice to have that community there. And they come back every single week. Digital minimalism, it's something that you're interested in. Yeah, I, I think people have very differing opinions on what it is. For me, I kind of binge a lot of digital minimalism content. But for me, it's like how you see how digital products can work for you as opposed to having them control your life, essentially. Um, and I think that's really important because I find that these days, if you're, say, walking from one room to the other, it doesn't, you know, you instinctively grab your phone for a couple of seconds, have a glance at it, sit down and then realize that you're sc- you've are you been scrolling for the past five, 10 minutes or whatever. So for me, it's trying to separate how we can utilize technology to the full in the sense that may actually make it work for your lives, that it's not distracting from your life and distracting from your time because time is your most valuable resource. I'm trying as much as possible. Like, for example, my phone is nowhere near me right now. Um, okay. And that's one thing that really helps. Another thing that I try to do is I have a, a shortcut that I've set up on the phone. So basically, um, I have an iPhone and I've set it up that if I tap the home button three times, it changes to grayscale, which means that if I glance at it, it's not inviting for me to look at. So oh, it's all right. gray. For me, my addiction would be email, yeah. you know, constantly checking because a bit like you. So I work for myself, really. I'm not self-employed, but it is all my work that I create, whether it's writing books or uh, creating content in other ways. And so email means potential work or, or yeah. feedback or, you know, so there's that constant. And But I do notice myself sort of checking it and being disappointed because something new didn't come in. Yeah, well, I, I'm very, I'm also very strict about email myself. And That's I think great. Yeah, so I, I only check it once an hour. <laughs> In terms of digital, um, it's not detoxification because uh, that's cutting it out completely in a way. But the minimalism is use it intentionally rather than habitually. Use it yes. consciously and ask yourself that question, you know, because so many of us just, you know, pick it up and just, oh, you know, and you that's not what you intended to do. So if you can kind of do that and use it to achieve something, does that, that make sense rather than just engage in an argument? And I mean, that achieving something could be just to find a bit of good news, which is rarer, but, and it could be maybe to make some sort of connection because you're lonely, you've been at home all day, but have a think about that rather than, as you said, it controlling you rather than mm-hmm. getting uh, drawn in. There's one thing I want to talk to you about as well is, and I love this phrase. I think you have it on your Twitter byline that you love foraging for joy. Yes. Uh, now, what you mean is that you forage for food and that gives you joy. But yes. actually, I love the, I love the idea of forage for joy. Look, because I'm always telling people, look around you. There's a lot of joy around you. So I watch some of your videos. You can look on Unaming's YouTube channel because you have videos of you actually 
foraging and making food. I'm going to try the nettle soup. <laughs> Does it taste nice? It's lovely. Yeah, I, I, nettle is a real superfood and it's been utilised for centuries of how. Yeah, I mean, I'm aware of that. But when I listen to your video, like all the vitamins that are in it. So obviously the sting goes out of it once yes. you cook it. Yeah, exactly. So no worries there. Yeah, I'm still scared <laughs> and I will try it. But what does it taste like? Yeah, it's it's quite difficult, I think, to explain what it tastes like without tasting it. It's not grassy. It's it's very. Okay. Um, is it bitter? No. So the key is is to pick the young leaves. So that's really okay. important, and make sure they're not old nettles. And also, it's super important where you actually pick them, because if it's in a place where there's dogs have been or whatever, it's they're probably not. Peed all over it because that's yeah. what I, yours. Yours looks lovely and fresh. <laughs> the tips are the best parts of the young leaves, but it tastes fresh. I guess this is the only way uh, to right. explain it. On a cold winter's day, it just really warms warms you up. Yeah, and it yeah. just it's really great. And energizing, I suppose, is the right word. But I, I found that, like, it was, I love the idea of foraging. So there's another video where you go foraging on a beautiful beach, but you actually pick up seaweed and you just put it in your mouth and eat it and go, oh, that's delicious. And I'm still going like as if you put worms in your mouth or something, yeah. but but you can see in your face that it's really delicious. Yeah. And I think that's really important as a content creator is that you show like, so I do a lot of foraging content on even TikTok as well. And it's really important to show people that you are eating it because it's all fine and grand me saying, this is this, this is this, this is, but without showing me actually eating it, there's a little bit of lack of trust there. But when you show someone exactly, look, I am eating it, it is perfectly fine for me to eat. And then it builds up that trust too, because I know if I'm watching other foraging videos and they say stuff, but they don't eat it themselves, I'm kind of like, mm, I would rather see it in action. I don't think it's something that you just go out and try. Yeah. You need to get a bit of knowledge. But I presume, as you've just said, there's videos online, yours and other people's. For anyone who's planning on foraging, you have to be 100% sure of what you're taking. And also just to be sustainable, like you might be very yes. excited about seeing something, but you don't just grab it. <laughs> you just take a little bit or whatever. Yeah, I, I did like that message, you know, just take what you will use, no waste and leave some for others, which is lovely. It's a really nice message. Speaking of good news, you mentioned earlier you have this website, but it's more than a website. It's a concept and it's a lovely idea. Yeah, so the, my website is called weareirish.ie. It followed on from a campaign I did in 2017, I think, um, which was to celebrate the diverse Ireland that we now have. Um, and the website itself basically covers good news, uplifting stories and profiles of Irish people at home and abroad or those who are within Ireland or have an affinity with Ireland. And basically, it is a content website. It's non-political. There's nothing to do with that on it. And it's really nice to be able to share those kind of stories. Now, obviously, it does delve into current affairs or perhaps have a small bit of bias into what I, I believe in myself. But overall, it's just basically focused in on good content and it's doing really well so far. Uh, we hit, um, so it's a, it's a one woman show, just myself. I say we, but right. it, it's, just, it's just me. Um, so are you creating all that content? Yeah. yeah. Oh my goodness. Um, yeah. Wow. Oh gosh. So folks do visit it is weareirish.ie. For me, I've always been interested in people and I always try and see who are the people behind certain things? So off the top of my head, I have a person who works in Emojipedia. So the people who create emojis. Oh, cool. <laughs> and, and, it's, and it's an Irish person who, work, who works within that. So again, it has all this focus on specifically people 
in Ireland or abroad that are connected to that. I've interviewed people who are immigrants to the country and who are now Irish and how they've moved from where have they been to here. Um, a guy was from the Philippines and he's in Mayo and there's another person who's from Pakistan who moved to Monaghan. And then also I cover a lot of stuff to do with Chichi Cahar because they send me a lot of their Irish language stuff so I get a, I kind of get a sneak peek before a lot of people and to write oh, cool. it on site which is really nice and to put it on site and yeah I think that basically my goal was to share useful content so what happened was I launched it in February and that was even before I knew that the pandemic was going to be a thing and thankfully it's over 100,000 views on site so it's done pretty Great. well so I think people want that kind of uplifting nature and oh yeah that's what I keep saying to people do you really need news on the hour every hour no you don't because news by definition the way it is nowadays is bad news and we need uplifting stories I would see it more like a magazine mm. website yeah and also just sharing things like um, phrases or things that they can just read quite quickly in terms of lists and everything so it's, it's a mix of everything oh that's right yeah yeah there is that well listopias and people mm. like those sort of things but the principle behind the we are Irish really is and it is an interesting concept I remember that when I went to university I took a module in philosophy and talking about identity and what it's made of. I think that's something that's problematically with our schools is that we don't educate people to think more broadly and from a less ethnocentric perspective. And kids in school in Ireland are taught stuff as if it's truth rather than saying, well, look, this is what this is within the context of Ireland or within the context of the UK and the current government or the because everything happens in a context. And there's so much biases in everything that you read and write that there's a huge problem in Ireland, I think, in terms of identity and confusing identity actually with nationalism, which mm -hmm. are Mm -hmm. Two entirely different things. Very much so, yeah. And also, people not understanding that nation states are really, really new uh, in evolutionary terms, a really, really new concept. Mm -hmm. And it's a really complex and ever evolving concept. And in a way, it's personal too, anyway. You know, how do you identify? And we're moving more that way in terms of how do you identify from a gender perspective? How do you identify from an orientation perspective? How do you identify from a religious perspective? And we're moving towards that you have choice on mm -hmm. that. But we haven't moved there yet in how do you identify from um, identity? I don't know what other word to say, but really what we're talking about, it's cultural, I think, in some regards. You know, if you identify as Irish, it's not about the country you're born in, because there's lots of Irish people who aren't born in Ireland. It's not about your full heritage. It's far more complex than that and nuanced and interesting. And I grew up in a very monocultural Ireland as a child and pretty much everybody was white. Um, mm -hmm. And if you were of a different colour or a different ethnic background, you were very much an exception. Mm -hmm. or you had come here to work in the nursing sector or to be a doctor. It's funny, it was very, 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 very limited. And now we have this wonderful, vibrant country that has all of these mixes. I kind of think that Irish people, whatever way you go back, I mean, we're a hybrid species. We're a mix of so many. We came from so many places to inhabit this island, which was densely populated and then became. And I think it's really cool that that's evolving. 
If you have a fixed set or notion about something like that, you're stuck. Mm-hmm. I have a very strong feeling, and this comes from me being educated in a way by my son, that when you talk about Irish music, people think of traditional Irish music. Now, my son is a musician and he creates music, but he doesn't play traditional Irish music. That's Mm -hmm. folk music. That is one genre of music. He's a trained classical musician. He also trained as a composer. He is composing new Irish music. He's not a pop singer, but he also, we have amazing Irish composers. And one thing that he says, it's so funny, ask anyone to name five Irish writers, ask anyone to name five Irish poets, ask people to name even five Irish actors, movie to ask them to name five Irish composers and people can't. They mm-hmm. don't even think of it as a thing because there's this narrow view of what Irish music is. Even yeah. someone like you too would be considered pop music or rock music or whatever it is. Sorry if I've insulted somebody by putting it in the wrong genre. But my argument being, and I think that sometimes happens with the whole Irish identity, it is just boxed into one very, very rigid, narrow viewpoint. And so say my son now is very passionate about, you know, no, we need to see Irish and we need to support Irish music. And so he did concerts where he mixed traditional Irish musicians with classical Irish musicians and composers and they blended and blended different. In He plays uh, saxophone and he did work with harpists and also with quartets, string quartets and, and blends and produces amazing stuff. But some people might think that's even sacrilegious. Do you know? It's funny. And and I think, who wants to be stuck still? There's value in observing traditions and keeping them, but there's also value in growth and moving. We accept growth and moving and progression in so many other areas, but then people seem, I I mean, I don't know whether it's a possessive thing, whether Mm. it's a fear-based thing, whether it's just a pure nasty thing. (laughs) Yeah, I think that just in general, sometimes people can get very territorial about things. That's a good word. And they think it's just just for them and that you can't give it to anyone else or because they won't understand, you know, um, I mean, I get a ridiculous amount of stupid comments about because I'm I'm not white. I I have Asian heritage. It's like, well, you'll never be Irish enough or something. So all this kind of stupid stuff. But yet I know that I'm doing more for the Irish language than they will ever do. And that's reassuring in one way. But also, I think that for some reason, they're territorial about something that they probably don't even use, which um, I find fascinating as a concept. And I don't know, is the word tribalism, is that kind of what we're looking at? Yeah, well, we have that, I think, even within Ireland. Like, I think it's impossible to have a sort of a fair competition. You'll see it in a modern thing, like if there's the voice or the equivalent of X factor. And voting happens by county or by province. And people vote tribally. They don't vote on talent. That's always sort of irritated me because you kind of go, can we just push that aside? And can we actually objectively look at the talent here? But I think tribalism is probably a good thing. I think it's important. I had a guest on last season and uh, she wrote a book called Sway, which is about all our inherent biases. It's fascinating. And as a psychologist, I'm fascinated by bias. And we are biased in absolutely everything that we do. You know, even when we're empathetic, we are biased. We are more likely to be empathetic with somebody who we relate to or somebody who looks like us or somebody the same age as us. And there's nothing wrong with that. They're heuristics just um, that your brain uses 
to function quickly and effectively and efficiently. But we have then a rational brain that can actually examine that bias. So I think it's very important to talk about biases and say, well, look, actually, it's not awful to think, oh, they're different or, oh, you know, that's what your brain is saying. You know, they're not from your tribe. And from an evolutionary perspective, they could represent danger. But actually, now we know they don't. So it's fine. You can have that instant, you know, especially if you're tired or stressed, you'll kind of more resort to those things. And then you just need to go, oh, yeah, no, that doesn't. I need to watch my own personal biases on that so I don't treat that person differently. And I think it is about being conscious like that. And I think that's going back to our educational system is that we don't teach people about. And that's why I'm passionate about trying to explain to people how your brain works so that you can become more self-aware and understand your own behaviors and actually behave in different ways or change behaviors if you don't want to. And I think understanding that bias thing is important. And, and again, like that, it's one of those things where you'd say it and then some people say, oh, bias is nonsense. You know, that's just giving an excuse. But actually, no, it's just explaining this is how your brain works. And then this is how the other part of your brain works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't get it. I mean, there's a lot of people with these Irish flags. And actually, as soon as I see an Irish flag on a Twitter (laughs) account, I go, "Okay, (laughs) step away. (laughs) Not safe territory, you know. And, And I mean, it's so funny. I'm Irish and I would not identify with any of their values or their Mm -hmm. lack of morals or how they would judge. But it's kind of worrying because it's kind of come to... I suppose witnessing things that have happened in the US Mm -hmm. and the UK, there's like sort of a certain permissiveness that Mm -hmm. people feel that they can say things. I mean, that happened for a while. So my youngest son, the the one who's the same age as you, so he's gay. So again, similar misconceptions, preconceptions, all sorts of things that when we were going through the marriage equality campaign, that there was a certain permissiveness that happened. My son actually just turned off social media completely because he couldn't cope with people deciding whether he would be suitable parent material, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, let alone should he have the right to marry. And he just couldn't cope with it because, as you said in your book, it's the little chipping, the little chipping, you know, it's death by a thousand cuts. Mm -hmm. People are concerned about big, awful things that happen, but it's the little everyday things that can just grind you down and wear you down. And I think in Ireland, we are far more biased than we would like to believe. And that's across everything. Obviously, you've been exposed to terrible racism, but we have a terrible ageist society. Yes, we do. Yeah, And that's one of my passions. Mm-hmm that we just need to change that, that that's so wrong. And even though we've gone further than we were, there's still, like I know my son and his husband still experience comments and different treatment that sort of shocks them, but then doesn't surprise them. Mm -hmm. So we've made incredible progress, but we're not this wonderful nation that we put forward sometimes. And I don't mean to diss us, but I think we need to be a little bit more honest. Totally, yeah. About how we are. Yeah, definitely, I think so. Yeah, and I think what you touched on as well, in particularly to do with ageism, that really annoys me because my mom would be, I suppose, an older mom and she's constantly being mistaken for my grandmother or she's treated like a deary or an old one. And it's like, I don't know where you're getting this from, that you think that you're infantiling older people for some weird reason when they're perfectly capable of doing whatever themselves. Happens all the time and as if they're hard of hearing. Yes, 
as if they have memory issues, as if, as you said, infantilizing. But also on top of that, and particularly as a woman, if you are a woman, it's even worse. You become invisible. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I don't know how old your mum is. Actually, let's talk about your mum for a few <laughs> minutes because she was incredibly brave because it is 30 years ago uh, as well. Mm-hmm. And she made a decision to become a single mum. Yes. So your mum, I think, was pretty ahead of her time just yeah. making this decision. I think so. Yeah. And taking this journey. Yeah. And I do think I agree. I think it was brave because even in the 90s, it was a situation where she was going to be bringing me back to a small town, truly, where it was a predominantly white society, essentially. Um, And also that she felt that she didn't need a replica of herself. And that wasn't diminishing anyone who has obviously natural children of their own, of course, but she felt that there were so many children out there who didn't have parents or who were going to be in a situation where there would be an orphanage or whatever. And so that she made the decision to adopt. Um, Thankfully, there were other women in her lives who had also adopted uh, from Vietnam. So it it wasn't at least a a lonely situation to have to deal with on her own. But even to do that, you know, because society is looking at you and wondering why is this single woman going to another country and bringing back in a baby and then she's not married and all this kind of ridiculous notions. It doesn't make her any less loving or any in any capacity. I think I was fortunate because it was the three of us with my granddad as well. Like he was very much a father figure. I think there was like a 70 year gap between us or something crazy like that. But it was very much that he also was well known in the town and he had a, had a lot of respect. So I can only imagine what it was like for other women, but I was fortunate that he had the respect within town anyway. So maybe it wasn't, maybe it's challenged as much, or even if they did, it was behind people's backs or whatever. So it wasn't really brought to her. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I think the thing is, one-to-one people are great. You know, that's the Mm -hmm. problem, I think, with the internet. People see another human when you're face-to-face and they are less lightly if you engage. Less lightly, not always, but less lightly. So my sister adopted, actually, from Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan. My son and his husband will have to adopt. They Mm -hmm. want children. So my sister adopted outside Ireland. There was no babies in Ireland for adoption. I don't believe there are babies available anyway, really, in Ireland for adoption. My son, they don't particularly have to have a baby, but they would like children. They will be going elsewhere. And so they're already considering that, well, their argument would be, well, their child is already going to have to face a challenge with two dads. And then how different can their child look from them so that they're not really making life difficult? It's, they're terrible questions mm-hmm. to have to even consider. Yeah. Because ideally, you shouldn't have to consider those at all. Yeah. But it's sad to have to think in those ways. And that's what I was saying to them. Look, wherever you go, you'll find and you will connect with the baby and that won't matter and you'll just have to give them the tools to help. But I just don't think we should even have to be having those. Yeah, it is a tricky one because I I was speaking to mom about this recently and obviously, you know, myself and my mom are like two peas in a pod, but it is hard to bring a child who is of a different skin colour into a white family for the child. Can I just say something that's so funny, though, to me? Because mm-hmm. you say you're not white, but to me, you're white. I mean, no. I, I know you have an ethnic background. Maybe I'm saying something just completely, completely wrong. And it wouldn't matter if you weren't white and it wouldn't matter if your skin was as dark as anything. You're the person that I'm talking to. But it's so funny for me to hear you say that I'm not white. And yeah. you've got really white skin. Yeah, well, I guess it's kind of 
Um, this could be just be the lighting as well, to be honest. <laughs> in <this> room. <laughs> but um, no, I, I, I definitely don't consider myself white because right, I, okay. because I have a very different experience to what a white person would have growing up in Ireland. Okay. Um, and it's not even just to do with my skin; it's also to do with my eye shape or whatever. Yes. Like, I'm very clearly Asian, and that's kind of the challenging aspect to it. In that, obviously, it's really commendable and important that people give homes to adopted children and everything but you are essentially also bringing a child into a situation where their race isn't the predominant race of the entire society so not only have to deal with being a different person of color within a family they also have to live with your entire adopted family understanding what's going on and also trying to figure out their own identity when they've been brought into a new country and identity is a very very hard thing particularly for adoptees I find it's particularly challenging and you're kind of uh, constantly fighting between one and the other because there'll be people who don't see you as quite being Irish enough but also for example I, I don't consider myself Vietnamese because my nationality isn't Vietnamese but I'm also not Vietnamese enough because I don't speak the language I have no yeah actual right now tangible connection um, but yet I do consider myself Asian which is different because I have an affinity with the Asian race and okay. I, I think that harkens back to something that you mentioned I think earlier which is where when I was growing up it was very hard for me to find any role models because I couldn't relate to anyone in the media who looked like me so yeah. the closest person that I had was someone like Jason Sherlock. That's right. The yeah. Gap yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. So, or you'd see Asian characters sometimes in movies or else they'd be very stereotyped. Um, and it was really hard because, you know, how can you feel like you belong in a society when you, can, you feel like you can't relate to someone in a society? And also when people are telling you that you're not Irish enough. So it's kind of like, you know, that's not quite what I believe now because I'm, I'm an adult. <laughs> I've, I've had time to reflect on that, but I can imagine what it's still like for other younger people. So, so what would, there's so many questions going around my head around this. So like, what would you say to parents who are going to kind of adopt and bring someone in? Because I often, I've heard this and, and read from people who maybe have a white parent and a black parent. They fit mm-hmm. in neither. And then also Lem Sassay that I was talking about, he was taken from his mother in the UK and put into foster care. So his mother is Ethiopian. So uh, once he found that out, then he has a strong sense of being Ethiopian, but he didn't have the lovely, that's why I think it's hugely important for you. You had, you know, a very nurturing upbringing, you know, with your mom and your granddad and even the community around you, whereas he was fostered until the age of 12 and then they Mm -hmm. gave him back. Just absolutely um, horrific stuff. So he strongly identifies with Ethiopia, but obviously he's very clearly also English, Mm -hmm. you know, as well. But I think it's something that he still explores as well, you know. But what would you say? What would you say to to, to parents? I think if I'm correct that your mum was very open about your Vietnamese yeah, yeah, heritage. I'm... But did she make any effort to introduce a Vietnamese heritage or did she keep it very much your Irish? Yeah, so um, our neighbour had also adopted from Vietnam. So, the, you know, we, we thankfully knew people who had that connection. One thing that I have read before um, is that a white family has adopted, like, say, for example, a black child and they've struggled with things on how to do their hair. Yes. Um, that kind of stuff. That stuff's really important to know. Yeah. It's those little cultural differences that is super important to understand. L- Lem has in his book, I Know My Name Is Why. If you haven't read it, I mean, it's a hard enough read, but it's a very interesting read. But he said his foster mother kept using a comb on his mm-hmm. afro and he was in agony. 
Yeah. Absolute agony. And just they went somewhere and someone actually went off and came back and said, you need to use this comb. Yeah. And they are very important things. Yeah, it is super important. Like I said, that people are adopting children and bring them into loving homes um, the majority of the time. But those things are really important to understand because you are essentially subjecting your child to a society that they might have to struggle with. And also, unfortunately, the reality is, is particularly in Ireland, that if it's a transracial adoptee from specifically someone like me, who's a person of colour or a a black child, is that they will probably experience racism in Ireland. And that's just the reality of it. So to prepare them for that, I would also just in terms of society in general, one of the things that I've learned is that it's hugely unhelpful to tell black people and people of colour to just ignore them. Because all that does is it diminishes the feelings that the person has just experienced. For me as a content creator, I've already seen the message. I can't just ignore it. I compare it to being slapped in the face and you're asking me to ignore being slapped in the face every single time. And I receive racial abuse every single day. So I think really every single day, every day. Yeah. Online. It's one of those things where I would just encourage people to just reconsider saying, just block it, just ignore it. Because of course, that's what you would do. But have you experienced the abuse? You probably yeah, haven't. No. And I mean, I think sometimes you have to take action. And I speak from this experience from my own son, in, yes. you know, in that regard. I mean, and it's not the same, but there are huge similarities. And you're echoing some of the things that he has said. And there are times where they have taken action. But our problem here is, and we still don't have proper hate laws. Yes. No, we don't know. And that's where they fall down, because even if they do decide to report or other people like them decide to report and say, look, they've said nasty stuff to me based on my sexual orientation. And the police will say, well, that's awful, but we can't. They have to do something else. So in your instance, you were actually assaulted and they actually have to do something else before the guards can actually take any action. Yeah. Um, and then you're in a whole other territory, whereas, you know, the words and the verbal abuse, I mean, it goes back to that old sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. That's so untrue. Words mm-hmm. can be the most hurtful and devastating and, and really get in on your sense of self. Because I even see that, like, I mean, I worked very hard to try and give my kids self-confidence. And then I often wonder, I kind of went, why is he not as confident as he should be? But obviously that's related to being othered. That's what I just think happens is once you put a the in front of something, the older people, the elderly, I even hate that, the gays, the blacks, the Mm -hmm. Asians, you know, once you do that, you're just putting them out there is something that's nothing to do with you. I much prefer we're humans and that's it. But that's very interesting. I mean, I, I do think it's a challenge. I think it's important for people to give homes, loving homes. And unfortunately, the way it works really is that for the most part, if you are going to adopt, it is going to be somebody who is of a different ethnic background mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. than you. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where the babies are. It's quite challenging. It has been absolutely fantastic talking to you. Uh, Keep up the good work. I know that you're going to be somebody who's just going to keep evolving and doing new things and exciting things. And you're breaking down barriers as well. I don't mean in terms of the advocacy. I mean, in terms of the work that you're doing. And I, I can just see it inside you. There's so much. I hope that people kind of keep supporting your work and doing at least you can do it online. Yes. Um, that's sort of something in terms of the pandemic that's really kind of restricted people. I hope your mental health remains good. Can I just ask you that actually? Have you found that since you've been working for yourself, you obviously have more stress 
in terms of the job, but have you found that it actually has really benefited your mental health? Oh, totally. Yeah, it was the best decision I ever made because I know that I'm reliant on myself. Like, and I, I prefer that that I have a bit more control over what I do. And okay, there might be a situation down the road where I have to go back to that type of job, and that's okay. But at least I know. I mean, this is my fifth year, I think, doing this. So wow. um, I've enjoyed You've it so much for <laughs> someone so young. You know, you really have. Just got to keep busy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm a bit like that. I'm not very good at sitting down. And I think if you have a tendency towards depression or anxiety, sort of doing nothing is not great. And a lot of people say, oh, but you need to be rather than do. But I think if you're absorbed in the moment doing something, you're present, you are being. Mm -hmm. Uh, And sitting doing nothing is not being. It's actually sitting ruminating (laughs) and sending you down. So I like to end the podcast by asking my guests for their piece of advice that they would give to others on thriving and surviving in life? Is there one little gem or nugget or two or three, you know, if there's something that you feel you'd like to share? Yeah, I think for me, it's very much is serve first. That's how I approach any bit of content and my life and my career and my life is to serve people first and then you can follow your point. <laughs> I really enjoyed chatting to Una Ming. She felt like such a breath of fresh air. She is definitely one to watch. If you are interested in understanding racism and other biases from a neuroscience perspective, check out season two, episode two, Horns and Halos, exploring unconscious bias with Pragya Agarwal. It's a really, really interesting episode that explores what goes on in our brain with all sorts of biases, not just racial bias. If you have been subjected to racism or have experienced depression or anxiety, do seek support. These are not easy issues to cope with alone. I'll put some support links in the show notes as well as the link to Unaming's joyful website and social media accounts. Speaking of social media, please do follow me, Sabina Brennan, on Instagram. I have finally got the hang of it. And Sabina underscore Brennan on Twitter. You'll find links to the animations I mentioned in our conversation on my website, superbrain.ie, where you'll also find links to my books, both Irish Times number one bestsellers. If you like listening to the podcast, please take a minute to rate it. Some things never change. We all love to get gold stars. Seriously, though, your gold stars could be the reason that somebody clicks on the podcast. Note I said stars in plural. Five, preferably. (laughs) Anyway, my name is Sabina Brennan and you have been listening to Superbrain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.